Listen to the words long written down When the man comes around Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Resurrection Church, and uh, we're in the book of John. We're going to be in and out of the book of John uh, until we finish it, and so we're uh, barely into John chapter 2. And last week, uh, we had an opportunity to uh, listen to the, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry as we see it recorded in the book of John. And so in John 1, Jesus has invited disciples to come and follow him. We get into John 2, and he's at a wedding, and they run out of wine and uh, his mom comes to him and asks him essentially to help out. And as Pastor Vance talked to us uh, about last week, we had an opportunity to kind of see how she starts to approach him in the mother-son relationship, but she kind of shifts into this idea of, of servant and Lord relationship, even in the way she addresses him, because there's this recognition as Jesus begins his ministry that his relationship with even his mother is going to change, that she's going to go from caring for him to serving him in a recognition of his authority. And so we see the dynamic of that play out, um, and he takes these giant, uh, what are almost look like cisterns, these huge stone jars that were used for ritual purification, and they fill them full of water, and then he turns them into wine, and it's the best wine that the, the master of the ceremony has ever tasted, and everybody's happy, and even the Baptists aren't mad. And everything's good. And, and, and it's the picture of Jesus, if, if I'm, I'm being honest, it's the picture of Jesus that... Uh, not that it's wrong, it's, it's, it absolutely is a, is a wonderful picture of Jesus, but it is the, the particular characteristics of Jesus that over the course of the last 50 years or so, uh, we've been, the American church has emphasized the most. The Jesus that does miracles, the Jesus that comes and fills where we need him, the Jesus that comes and blesses, the Je- and, the, and, and it's true, and it's accurate, and it's biblical. But it's the one that has been overemphasized over the course of the last 50 years or so in American evangelicalism. It's the, it's the one that we've really put a lot of emphasis on uh, to the detriment of the fact that Jesus is more than this. He's greater than this. He's, he's, there's more complexity than this. There's more authority than this. There's more power than this. And we're going to see that today because he's in Cana at this wedding. He's going to come to Jerusalem. And in the course of, of coming to Jerusalem, in the same chapter, we're going to go from, man, Jesus, who is uh, this helpful um, person in a wedding that causes great joy to a very different side of Jesus, very quickly, very abruptly in this chapter. And so uh, as we look at that, it it just kind of reminds me of how often we attempt to only see the parts of Jesus that make us comfortable. Because it's easy for us, but that's not who he is. And anytime you attempt to fashion a Jesus in your own image, fashion the Jesus that you want, you're, in essence, practicing idolatry. We don't get to shape who Jesus is. He shapes who we are. 
It reminds me of a story from C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've ever read C.S. Lewis. Uh, wrote some amazing books. Mere Christianity is one of my favorite books of all time. But he also wrote a series of fictional books that was an allegory to Christianity and the gospel particularly called The Chronicles of Narnia. Little thing, anyone ever heard of that? Yeah, maybe once or twice. He wrote a whole, a whole series, a whole uh, story that parallels the gospel and Christianity. It has some really fun parts to it, and it's been made into movies and all sorts of things, but there's a, a portion of the story later in the series in one of the books called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where two of the characters, Edmund and Lucy, are traveling, and they're looking for the land of Aslan, and Aslan's the king, he's the lion, and the land of Aslan uh, is, is kind of a parallel to finding heaven. And so they're searching for the land of Aslan, they can't find Aslan, and uh, they're, they're on this journey, and they come to this, this huge expanse of grass, just this gorgeous, massive field of nothing but grass, as far as they can see, and the only thing in the entire field, in the center of it, is a lamb. And there's a lamb sitting at a little campfire in the middle of the field, and he's cooking them breakfast. And he's cooking fish for breakfast and he invites them to come and eat. And it says they come and they eat and it's the best food they've ever tasted. And again, it's this parallel back to John 21 when we see Jesus after the resurrection sitting on the beach as the disciples come in from fishing because they've kind of abandoned God and they kind of run off as they come in. He's sitting on the beach on over charcoal fire and he's cooking them breakfast and it's fish. It's the same thing. He's just kind of picking things out of the gospel and writing them into this children's story. And they come and they're asking the lamb, do you know where, where we can find Aslan? Where can we find, we're looking for him, we're searching for him. And as they sit there and as they eat and as they speak to the lamb, the lamb transforms in the story into a giant powerful lion and it's Aslan sitting there. And, it, and it's a reminder, even in this fictional story and this allegory to us, that Jesus, while he is the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the earth, he's also the lion of Judah. And though he came to serve and to die, he also came to rule and to conquer. And the same Jesus that is meek and lowly is powerful and even violent. And he's serious about justice and holiness. In uh, one of the books in this series, C.S. Lewis uh, is describing Aslan, the lion, the king, to the characters. And he uses a little character named Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver's telling Lucy about Aslan. And he says to her, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. So we're going to take a look at Jesus coming into Jerusalem, starting here in John chapter 2, verse 13. Let's take a look at this today. It says this. This is directly after he's come out of Capernaum uh, with his mother and brothers. They, they went to the wedding in Cana. Then they went to Capernaum where he has really centered most of his ministry that we'll, we'll find. And then he's going up to Jerusalem. It says in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. This will be a one of two times recorded in the Gospels. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, uh, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels or accounts of Jesus' ministry. And we're gonna see two separate instances of Jesus cleansing the temple. This one in John, right after his ministry begins. And then another one recorded in the other three gospels, which are often called the synoptic gospels because they are a little more concerned with the chronological order of Jesus' ministry. Um, They will record him cleansing the temple right before the Passover week that would lead to the crucifixion, three years from the point we're reading today. So this happens two different times. Uh, this is the, uh, the early account of him cleansing the temple. He's only recorded in the Gospel of John. They're going, he is going up to, it says, uh, Jerusalem. You, they went up to Jerusalem because uh, Jerusalem and the temple specifically were built up on a hill. And so as you came into Jerusalem, you would be able to look up and see the expanse of the temple of the Israelites. Now, the temple itself was built all the way back by Solomon about a thousand years prior, 949 BC. Then it was destroyed via the occupation of the Babylonian Empire that came in. They rebuilt it in 515 BC. And then more recently, really about 50 years or so before these events, Vince, Herod, uh, one of the, the localized rulers of the Roman Empire there in the Middle East, had uh, helped reconstruct and remodel the, the temple. And so all of this has gone on because the temple in Jewish time was the center of the religion, was the center of culture, it was the center of their faith. The Old Testament records that the temple is where God would actually be. His presence would be in the middle of the temple. So it represented the presence of God for his people, the Israelites. It was a beautiful place. In fact, you go to the Old Testament, you can read details about how God specifically charted out how big it would be and and the dimensions and what material and what artists and what colors and what textures. In great detail, that is recorded in the Old Testament. God was very specific about how beautiful uh, the temple would be. However, the temple was a series of courts. In the very center of the temple of the Jewish faith was a place called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And in it, it was supposed to uh, have the very presence of God. Therefore, because the presence of God dwelt there, no one could go in. Once a year, the high priest, after going through a whole series of ceremonial, uh, uh, basically symbolic Uh, traditions to cleanse himself and repent of his sins would go into the holiest place one time a year past these curtains that separated the holiest place from the holy place that didn't have a lot of original names one time a year so that he could sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and ask for the forgiveness of sins for the people of israel And outside the holiest place was the holy place, separated by curtains, the very curtains that would tear apart when Jesus dies on the cross, symbolically showing us that there's now no separation between us and God as there was in Old Testament time. And outside the the holy place, there was an altar for the sacrificing of animals, uh, and then there was the court of priests that only the Levite priests were allowed into. And then outside that was the court of Israel where uh, Jewish men were allowed to come to worship God and to to offer praise to God and offer sacrifices. And outside that off to the side was the court of women where Jewish women were allowed to come and worship and participate in service. And then outside that, the very outside was the court of the Gentiles 
where if you were a Gentile, you were not part of God's people, but you had recognized that he was the God, you could actually come to the temple to participate in worship, even as an outsider. We see that this is where Jesus is going to be entering in. At the point that he's coming to Jerusalem because of the Passover feast, at the center of Jewish religion, all of Jewish men are coming from all of these out, uh, uh, surrounding areas, all over the place where they lived. They were called to come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, to go to the temple, to offer sacrifices and offerings that were offered once a year. And so Jerusalem would swell in size during this one week when everyone would come into the city. There's probably around two and a half million people in Jerusalem at this point flooding into the temple. What Jesus finds as he enters the court of Gentiles it's not just a bustling crowd of people who have come to worship God. He finds something entirely different. Verse 14, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. At, on face value, actually, this isn't a, a horrible thing. I'll explain why. What one, you had to do two things during the Passover feast if you were coming to the temple uh, in order to be obedient to the, the Mosaic law. So the first thing is you were coming and you would need to offer a half shekel offering for the service of the temple. And it was part of just being obedient in the old covenant. You would you'd give this half shekel and it was, it was given toward the upkeep of the temple itself, of the people that worked in the temple. And then the other thing is you would bring your sacrificial animals in. And so you had some sacrifices that were once a year sacrifices, except God requires your best, your first fruit. So they had to be animals that were without blemish. There were no fault. There's no blemish. The problem was if you traveled a two-week journey to get to the temple and you got there and you found out you made a mistake and there was a blemish on the animal, it's kind of a long commute to get back home to get another animal. And so they'd set up places where they had uh, animals without blemish so that you could, uh, if there was a problem, you could buy an animal, you could buy a lamb, you could buy an oxen, you could get uh, the, the birds that necessary, two doves. You, you, you had things that you could then go and sacrifice and honor God with and worship God. So it made sense. And, and uh, in Mosaic law, you couldn't take foreign currency into the temple. And in the Roman Empire, everything had to be done with Roman currency. So there, a money changer was just somebody that would let you swap out Roman currency for shekels so that you could go and you could pay these tithes and these offerings in the temple. Those were good things. They weren't bad things. At least they started as good things. But over the years, what had happened, like happens anytime people are in charge, is they got greedy. And so instead of it being there to help enhance worship and it, and it helped uh, make it easier and take out obstacles for the worship of God, they had instead begun to extort worshipers. And they had begun to extort what, frankly, if you understand the economy at that time, were some of the poorest people in the world. And they become an obstacle to worship. And when Jesus sees it, what he runs into is a fee to get a half shekel would have cost almost a day's wages to change that money out. What he runs into is a racket in which no matter how blemish-free the animal is that you brought, someone would find a blemish in it anyways to tell you it wasn't worthy, and you'd have to buy one from there at exorbitant prices. 
Levite priests, as part of their training, were sent to farms to live for 18 months, specifically to work on understanding what was and was not a pure animal that was acceptable for the worship of God. They were experts in this. And then they were turning a blind eye so that they could charge exorbitant margins on everyone who came in and traveled from out of town so that they could make profits. In fact, they made so much profit inside the court of Gentiles from these things that the head priest, Annas, had started charging uh, almost like a franchise tax so you could have a booth in there. Essentially, just imagine like McDonald's and Starbucks all around. Court of Gentiles just charging exorbitant like airport prices. Y'all ever bought a Starbucks at airport? Woo, man raking in money. How much money? So much money that it was known in that time that no longer called it the temple. They, they used to sarcastically refer to this as Annas, who was the high priest, Annas Bazaar, his flea market, because he was raking in the money. Years before this event, uh, there was a, a, a rebel brigand and some of his followers that rushed into the temple and stole tw- the, the equivalent of $20 million worth of money out of the temple. And it didn't even come close to emptying the amount of money that was sitting in the temple. That's how much money they were making. Off the poorest of the poor, the least of these, the marginalized who had come to worship God and were being extorted. So as Jesus comes in to the court of Gentiles, he does not see worship of the Father. What he sees is huckstering and bartering and haggling and commerce. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is the only time this time and the second time that he cleanses the temple are really the only times that we see Jesus use anything close to physical violence in any of the accounts of Jesus. This specific time is the only time we ever see him use a weapon, and neither time that he uses physical violence are they for self-defense. He never preached self-defense. We don't ever see him use self-defense or display it. So it's, it's worth taking a deeper look at why this, of all of the different sin that Jesus would encounter, and he encountered a lot of sinfulness in his ministry, in his three-year mission or so, why was this so odious to him? Why was this so heinous to him that it would drive him to physical violence? Let's talk for a minute about what righteous anger really is. What we see Jesus happening here, and we only see this a few times in scripture, is we see Jesus Exceptionally angry, exceptionally angry. Now we know that you can be angry and not sin because Jesus is angry and he never sinned. So it's possible. Ephesians 4.26 is often quoted by Christians and says, be angry and do not sin as sort of a justification that it's possible to be angry and yet not commit a sin, which is true. But I would tell you that that's actually the exception, not the rule. I would say for you and I, since we're not Jesus, most of the time we're angry, it's not righteous anger. In fact, the bulk of scripture, in re- anger or angry is mentioned over 200 times in scripture and almost all of those are really telling us don't be angry. They're not saying, yeah, go ahead and be angry and just control it. That's, that's not the advice that you see given in scripture very often. Most often it says, don't be angry. Be slow to anger, put away anger, walk away from anger. In fact, 
We see anger mentioned with other things that are also parts of the fruit of the flesh. We see things like walking away from anger, wrath, malice, slander. Anger is often compared to those types of things, non-righteous things. Anger is not listed as a fruit of the spirit. It's listed as a fruit of the flesh. A couple verses after the, the text in Ephesians 4.26, where it says, be angry and do not sin, it says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as Christ, God in Christ forgave you. There is a misconception in the Christian faith that when you're angry, it's probably righteous anger. Let me just be really clear. When you're angry, 99.99% of the time, it's not righteous. When I'm angry, most of the time, it has little to do with righteousness. It usually has something to do with me getting my feelings hurt, or my pride hurt, or not getting my way, or being offended. And it rarely has to do with actual righteousness. In fact, if you're angry because you're offended about something, it's very likely not righteous. If you're angry because you've been slandered, even though slander is not right, being angry because you've been slandered is is not righteous. If you get angry because you feel like you've been taken advantage of, it's not righteous. Political anger. very rarely righteous. Cultural anger is very rarely righteous. You know, if we're getting really specific and we begin to look at all the things that Christians would tell you we should be offended by, most of them aren't actually very righteous at all. If we go back through Christian history, even in just the last 300 years of the American country, you'll find that very little of what's in there is something that would be biblically righteous to be angry about. If we're being really honest, England taxing your import of tea too much and not giving you representation in Parliament, it's not a righteous reason to be angry, and yet we overthrew a government for it. <laughs> now, there are, there are areas to be righteously angry. If we look at Jesus' example and we look at examples in our culture, to be angry over the innocent being taken advantage of, okay. To be angry at the mistreatment of the marginalized and the defenseless, yes. To be angry at sin, yes. But if we're being honest, that's rarely reasons for our anger. So let's look at what drove Jesus to righteous anger, to physical violence in the temple. What does he say? Verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That that word, uh, my father's house, a house of trade, the Greek word for trade there in the text is the root word of emporium. Anyone ever heard of a carpet emporium, right? 
flea market. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. You have turned my father's house. Jesus is God's son. This is the temple of God. You've turned my father's house into a house of commerce, into a house of trade, into a house of haggling, into a house of negotiating and bartering, into a house of extortion. But as much as Jesus is mad about people being taken advantage of, and he's rightfully so, really the text is saying he's mad about the transactional nature of what is going on. And so we're going to talk about this transactional nature today and what Jesus is really pointing us towards. And then it says his disciples remembered this. They, the, the quote that's used there in verse 17 is actually from Psalm 69, 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, it says his disciples remembered this. It doesn't tell us when they remembered this. And like later we're going to see them remember something that they, they probably don't get for like three years after this. So my guess is they didn't like immediately remember this. I, I, I don't, Jesus' disciples don't have a great track record of even knowing what in the heck is going on. Like it just don't, they're just, they're, most of the time they're kind of clueless. They feel a little ditzy. They're like the weird blonde extra that they throw into shows all the time and just never knows what's happening. Like that's what Jesus' disciples feel like most of the time. They don't connect the dots at all. They almost never know what's happening. In fact, Jesus sometimes feels a little frustrated that they don't know what's going on. But uh, like in their defense, Jesus has just been at a wedding making wine and people are partying and then he goes to the temple and this is like the feast week and it's probably they're thinking it's going to be an even better party than the party we just went to and then the moment they walk into the temple waiting for the party, Jesus makes a whip and starts chasing everyone around and if you're them, I'm sure you're just going like... Well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> I thought we were here to party. And Jesus is like flipping tables. That's a whole nother kind of party. So them remembering Psalm 69.9, I'm guessing happened way later. In the moment, I think you're just, you, these disciples are probably like, see what he does next. I, it, it's, it, it would be comical at how bad the disciples are at connecting the dots if I weren't really bad at connecting the dots myself. Like I, every time I feel the temptation to really make fun of the disciples, I just remember how, how really poorly I do remembering the goodness of God in my life. I don't know about you, but for me, like the moment circumstances begin to overwhelm me, I just have this forgetful nature of like, is God even good? And God has to, I, I'm sure it's, I don't know if it's frustrating for God or if he just laughs a lot at me. Like, oh, yeah, again? It happens all through the Old Testament. You know, there's like dozens if not hundreds of chapters in the Old Testament that start with God saying, remember when, you know, like he has to point them back to his track record of goodness and faithfulness because we just remember. I would just tell you this in the Christian life, you're gonna have these, these times where you, you, you don't see what God is doing in the moment and, and like as you're looking at your circumstances and you're going, I don't see how God is good in this moment at all because he's not doing the thing that I really want him to and if he doesn't do the thing that I really want him to, he's probably not a good God and you don't realize God's providence and his mercy until you're looking in the rearview mirror at your life a year ago at your life two years ago and then you're like oh wow 
we've come a long way. Oh, wow, God really saved me from myself in that season. Oh, wow, God has really changed me. I didn't realize I was so prideful even though the nine other men in my small group kept telling me I was prideful. How was I supposed to know? (laughs) That they were all right. And after the fact, we look back and realize God's hand has been on us and those circumstances through that entire time. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about the, the, the core heart issue that Jesus is, is essentially attempting to communicate to his disciples and he's attempting, and it's the reason for his angst and his anger and his dissatisfaction here in just a second. But just, here's the thing it's not. It's, it's not about selling things in church. This, this scripture often gets applied to like, Things about money in church. It's, it's really not about money in, in church at all, which isn't to say that we shouldn't do a good job as a church trying to make sure that there are not impediments to people's worship in the church building. That's a good thing. That's a, that's a good thing. That's just not what this text is about. So like, you know, for some reason, there's being like a bake sale out in the foyer. You don't need to be like quoting John 2 and flipping their table. The poor girls, man. Just don't. Leave the table. Leave the table. Leave the cookies. That's not, that's not what this is about. If someone's like trying to get a camp sponsorship at some point, please don't make a whip. Not, not this. It would be awkward. Je- Jesus is essentially telling us two things. And you could write these in the margin of your Bible. You could write these in your notes. Two things I want you to see here. It's at the heart of this story. Number one is this. This is, this is, a, this is a tension, a fight between transactional and relational worship, transactional and relational worship. And I want you to see that in just a second. Jesus is gonna use some very specific language that, that shows us this. And the second thing is, God desires purity in his house and no one else in his throne. Transactional versus relational worship and God desiring purity in his house and no one else in his throne. And I'm gonna show you, uh, really, Jesus is gonna be very clear with us here about why this is so. We're gonna go to verse 18, and Jesus is gonna get challenged by the religious elite. The Pharisees at that time are gonna come and challenge him. Uh, John can be a little confusing. The book of John will use the term the Jews like interchangeably at times. Sometimes it means the Pharisees. Sometimes it means the religious elite. Sometimes it means the Hebrew people. It's like me with dude, right? Everything's dude to me. If you're a guy, dude. If you're a girl, dude. I, like, I called my toaster oven dude the other day because it was like stuff was smoking and I thought the alarm was gonna go off. I was like, dude! So that's Jews to John, just okay? Just put dude in there. So anyways. So the Jews, the Pharisees, said to him, they come to Jesus to confront him. I mean, he's just made a mess. He just cut into their prophets. He just kicked everybody out. He's swinging a whip around. He's flipping tables. He's pouring money out. The disciples are confused. He's angry. They come and they say this. What sign do you show us for doing these things? So let me just stop and explain this. Um, again and again in the Bible with Jesus and with the disciples later, uh, they, they are going to 
push into something that disturbs the status quo. They're going to disturb the religious elite who have a nice little gig set up here. They're making a ton of money, by the way. And uh, they will come at different times and challenge Jesus or the disciples. And it'll be different ways. Sometimes they'll say, by what authority do you teach these things? Or uh, by what authority do you do this? And in this case, it's different. Here's why it's different. Uh, there is no authority other than God's that would justify Jesus walking into the temple and chucking everybody out. So they skip that question and they basically go, it had to be God's authority. So what miracle or sign can you show us to prove that God told you to do this? Verse 19, Jesus answered them. Jesus is sort of the king of non-answers. Have you ever noticed that? Like, man, you just don't get answers from Jesus. You get weird stuff. Verse 19 says this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Man, Jesus, that is not helpful. 20, they're confused. The Jews, still the Pharisees, dudes, whatever. Dudes then say, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. That's the, really since the last time that Herod helped remodel and everything. And you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, so that, now we're fast forwarding three years, right? You ever been in a show where they get flashback, flash forward, flashback? You're like, I, I don't even know where we are in time. When he was therefore raised from the dead, they're talking about the resurrection now. His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is saying in regards to himself, destroy this temple, destroy my body, and I'm just going to pick it back up again in three days. So this is actually kind of important because up until this point, the temple has been where the presence of God dwells. But by Jesus calling himself the temple, he's telling us the presence of God no longer resides in a stone building in the Middle East. You catch that? For a thousand years, if you were a Jew, you had to, to take a pilgrimage annually to Jerusalem, to the temple at the Passover week, to be just near the presence of God. And Jesus, in one sentence, is telling you, it ain't there anymore. It's here. I'm him. I'm the presence of God. And we see this. We see this at the baptism of Jesus. We see this at the transfiguration. Jesus is now the glory and the manifestation of the glory and presence of God, not the temple. And that's going to lead us to an actually interesting question. If Jesus is now the resting place for the glory of God, why is he so angry about what's going on in the temple if that's not even the house of God anymore? Verse 22, we're going to keep going. Verse 22 Seems like a weird statement, right? Because the Jews clearly don't understand what Jesus has talked about with his body. And then verse 22 tells us, when therefore he was raised from the dead. So again, three years from now, guys, his disciples are going to remember that he said this and they're going to believe the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So I just, I just want you to think about what 
John uh, 2.22 is saying, it's saying that three years from now, there's going to be a point where Jesus went to the cross and there's rumors that he has been raised again. In fact, some people have seen him. And now the believers, the disciples, they're all talking like, could it be true that he is really alive and does that make any sense? And they're sitting around the upper room and they're kind of in hiding because there's persecution and they're not sure what's going on. And I mean, Peter's just denied Christ and everybody's just like, was our faith for nothing? Was this last three years just like a waste of time and somebody goes hey wait a minute do you remember do you remember that weird thing where Jesus was whipping people and flipping tables hey do you remember what he said he he told us that if they destroyed him he would raise that back up in three days he told us this was coming this is real now listen, it's a pretty cool deal if like you're playing a sport, like you're playing golf and somebody like, like calls a shot before he actually hits the, the shot, right? Like you know, the old Babe Ruth thing where like points over the wall that he's gonna hit the pitch to and then he hits a home run to the same spot. I mean, that's pretty cool. But you know what's really cool is the guy that three years ahead of time says, listen, I'm gonna let you kill me and then I'm gonna go to hell, but hell can't hold me and from death, I'm gonna pick up my own life and get back up. That's calling your shot. That's not a weak savior. That's a powerful savior. And it led the disciples, this is what the Bible tells us, to believe. It led to belief. Just like we saw last week that the miracle at the wedding in Cana led to belief. Tim Keller is a uh, personal hero of mine. Um, he has shaped my ministry for years and years uh, without ever knowing me because of the books that he's written and the things that he's preached. And this is the way that he has dealt so gently with people, uh, particularly adversaries and people that were, were uh, hostile to him. And he passed away this past week, went to see Jesus at the age of 72. But there was a, uh, in, in his book, he recalls a, in one of his books, he recalls a lesson he was taught when he was very young in the faith and just kind of learning who Jesus was. Uh, a lady named Barbara Boyd was actually teaching a group of them about who Jesus was and how we have this, this weird misunderstanding that Jesus is just meek and, and, and we turn meek into weak and we don't understand his power. And, and, and I want to read it to you because it's, it's actually pretty impressive. It says this, that was the day, is, he's talking about Barbara Boyd, that was the day she looked at us and she said something kind of like this. If you want to invite me into your house and you say, come in Barbara, stay out Boyd, I wouldn't even know what to do with that because I'm Barbara Boyd. In fact, I, I couldn't even say that this half is Barbara and this half is Boyd, so I'll just bring half in because I'm all Barbara and I'm all Boyd. I'm both, so you either get all of me or you get none of me. Then she turned around and said, if you say I would like the loving Jesus, I would like the helping Jesus, I would like the Jesus I can ask to help me through the hard times, but I don't want the holy Jesus, I don't want the powerful Jesus, I don't want the Jesus who is great, you get no Jesus at all. She said, think about this for a minute. If the distance between the earth and the sun, the earth and our sun is the thickness of one piece of paper, 96 million miles from here to the sun, if that were represented by the thickness of this piece of paper, 
Do you realize that the distance from the Earth to the next nearest star is a stack of these papers 70 feet high? Just the diameter of our little galaxy would be a stack of these papers 310 miles high. And our little galaxy is just a speck of the overall universe. And as big as that is, the Bible says in Hebrews 1 that Jesus Christ holds the universe together with the word of his power. She said Jesus Christ holds the universe together with his pinky. And then she looked and smiled and said, do you ask somebody like that into your life to be an assistant? We need to be reminded of his power. Because Jesus Christ is not here only to be a friend or a homeboy or a co-pilot. He's not here to pick it up when you take it as far as you can and then he takes you the extra 10%. He's not here to grant your wishes. He's king. In the Christian life, if you've decided to follow Jesus, you and I are going to experience seasons and periods of extreme doubt. We, we are. We're going to suffer through some of those seasons. In the face of all that God's done, we're going to become overwhelmed by circumstances. And we'll need reminding again and again about his power. It's going to happen. It happens to me way more often than I really want to admit. I get caught up in my own circumstances all the time where I can't see the future and I can't see how this is going to work out and I can't see the specifics of how something's going to happen. And so I just spent, this week, I just spent way too much time with like this anxiety about financial things and how it was going to work out. And, and I just, I look back at the week and realize I just spent a huge amount of energy and a huge amount of time just worrying about myself, worrying about things that God already has in control, which is just really a stunning display of a lack of faith. They, they say that whatever you're really good at, you should never do for free, but I'm not exactly sure how to sell anxiety. <laughs> I'd be rich. And then oftentimes, I spend even more time feeling really sorry for myself and a, and a little bit of condemnation about how little faith that I had. It's a terrible cycle. And it happens to the disciples too. If you've ever read the stories about the disciples, every time the disciples get on a boat with Jesus, man, look out. And anytime there's like some rain or some storms, they're freaking out. Like they don't even know who he is even though they watch him do all the miracles. I don't feel too bad about that. It'd be really funny to laugh at the disciples if I didn't relate to their lack of faith so well. Jesus is going to help us understand specifically this, this, this occurrence of cleansing the temple in the last three verses that seem like they're kind of just snuck in there at the end. And I want to read you verses 23, 24, and 25, because they're actually going to tell you what this whole thing is about. Verse 23 says this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, so he's cleansed the temple, he's in Jerusalem, it's the Passover week. So it says, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... So during this time, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That means he did not make known to them that he was the Messiah. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What is in man? Sin. 
sin. This is the key to understanding this whole story about the temple. Why is Jesus so angry? Yes, part of why he's angry is that the very place that's supposed to be about worship of the Father has turned into a den of extortionists and greed and and taking advantage of the least of these. Yes, that's true, but let me keep going. Secondly, the, the bigger issue with the temple is that the temple had become a place where you bartered and traded for God's favor. You begin to negotiate with God. Instead of awe and reverence about being in the presence of God where you can worship him, people were now haggling of how much they would have to spend to satisfy God. Like, what's just enough, God? I don't want to go too far. How much do I have to spend so you'll be okay with me? Like, I just want to be on good terms with the, uh, the old man in the sky. You know what I'm saying? You, you must understand this about the heart of God. God never, ever, ever wants to be bartered with. You don't deal with God. You don't negotiate with a king. And we do this all the time. We try to negotiate. Hey, God, if you'll just, if you'll just change this situation that I'm in, if you just do this thing that I want, if you just, just create this relationship and just fix this one thing, oh, I'm going to serve you, God. I'll read my Bible and I'll go to church and I'll do this and that. And we, we attempt to sit and negotiate with God. Or even worse, actually, what's probably more common for most of us is we go, hey, God, um, I'm, I'm going to church and I'm checking this box and I'm trying to be kind of moral. I mean, I was kind like last Tuesday. And now you owe me. because I did these things that should be pleasing to you and because I served you and I checked these boxes, now you should be working on my behalf. We negotiate like a transaction. Like the cash register line at Walmart, right? How much do I have to give to barter for this and buy this? And Jesus is trying to explain this is never meant to be transactional. This is a relationship we even see this happen in the Bible. We, we see people get angry at God in the Bible because they think that they've, they've served God well and therefore God owes them something. You read the story of Job? If you take out the middle of Job, which is essentially just really bad, at fries, uh, bad advice from bad friends. By the way, get better friends. It's Job thought that because he lived righteously, he deserved better than he had. And he's angry at God. He's ticked off that he lost his family, that he lost his stuff. And listen, worldly speaking, a lot of us would look at what happened to Job and you go, oh, my kids died. My stuff was burned up. I have boils all over my body. Like, yeah, that would be all. If that happened, I'd be angry at God too. But God answers Job. And let me just be honest, it's not a gentle answer. He answers him for two chapters. First of all, he, he, like, he says, be a man and come take the answer. Okay, we already started off on a non-gentle foot, let's be honest. And then he says, where were you when I formed the mountains? Where were you when I put snow on top of them? Where were you when I scooped out the oceans? Where were you when I took every star and I placed it in the sky? Where were you when I breathed earth into dead bones and made life? Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Know your role, Job. I'm king. 
And we don't like that because it hurts our pride. We want to be on equal footing with God because if I go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that's why Eve ate the apple in the first place. I want to be God. And God's like, you serve me. Oh, does that hurt? Does it not sting the pride a little bit? I want to be in charge. God's like, you don't negotiate with kings. This story isn't about cleaning up a church building. It's about true worship instead of haggling. It's about a relationship with God that's not based on our own merit. It's not based on our actions. It's not based on how morally we live. It's not based on what we give. It's not based on some some lowest common denominator of I'll do just enough to skate by with the Lord. God, listen to me, God wants relationship with you. He desires it. In the perfect world, before sin entered the world, we walked with God in the garden. We're just hanging out, like just bros in the garden are probably like watching a UFC fight and riding dinosaurs. I don't know. But it was relationship. It wasn't a set of religious traditions or things you had to check boxes of to get it. It was relationship with God, and he desired it so much from us that he sent his son to suffer and die for you and I so we could have it. So when you look at the invitation to relationship, and you go, nah, I don't want that, how much money do I have to pay? It is an affront to the king. Because that's not the invitation. The invitation is not serve a little, give a little, uh, do a little moral things and be okay with God. It is, it is an invitation to be a son or a daughter of the king and to dwell with him forever and to realize what it is to worship him in awe and in reverence. And listen, not only can you get this wrong because we're selfish and we want to we want to do the minimum amount but the moment you mix up this idea of, of of relationship versus transaction it actually begins to just compound a problem in that the moment you make a mistake you think somehow you've displeased god and you've got to do a bunch of good things to make up for it but that's not actually what the gospel's about at all and so instead of realizing that you've messed up and somehow feeling a condemnation that you're now no longer worthy of god you need to understand that you were never worthy of god and that regardless of your performance and how you messed up. He already knew you were going to do that. He paid for it on the cross before you were born, before you decided to mess up and after you decided to mess up because he loves you. And it's not based on your performance. It's not based on a transaction. It's based on his character. The gospel is so much more than we give it credit for. And Jesus illustrates that in his anger about the temple because he's referencing his own body as a temple. And we need to understand the purpose and the point of the story is not about a building in Jerusalem. It's about the new temple. Where's the new temple? 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys the temple... God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Again and again, we're going to see in the New Testament references to the believer. At the moment of salvation, you put your faith in God. You go, you're my king. I'm going to follow you. He indwells us with his Holy Spirit. We become the place of worship and relationship with God, not a stone building in Jerusalem. 
We have constant access to worship God, to love him, to talk to him, to be with him. We don't need to travel anywhere to commune with God. But if we go back to the story, what's the real problem? The, 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 the temple, because of our hard hearts, has this potential, it has this temptation to be filled with greed and haggling and bartering. And so do you and I. You and I, as the temple of God now, with God's spirit indwelt us, are still not perfect. We still have this fleshly desire and this heart that continues to pull against the things of God. And you feel that in you. It's why he placed his spirit in you in the first place. And we have a tendency to allow these things back into our life, allow them to, to, to pull at the relationship and the access that we have to God. How do we keep this temple clean of greed and bartering and negotiating. Verse 25, he knew what was in man. You can't. How's that for an encouraging message? You can't. You can't clean it up. You don't have the power to. That's why he put his spirit in you. He does the work. That's why Jesus would say, listen, you either abide in me and actually produce fruit or you're separate from me and then nothing, it's death. We have to, if we want real change to happen inside us, we have to recognize, listen to, and obey the spirit of God. Because he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And so the way that we keep the temple of God free from these things is we actually let God do the cleaning that he's trying to do. God desires in you and me. God desires purity in his house, us, and no one else on his throne. We have this amazing tendency to want to sit in the throne and make decisions for our life. And God is jealous over the spirit that he put in us. Here's the wonderful news about keeping the temple clean. He'll do it. He will do it. He put his spirit in you, not only so you can have access to him and, and relationship with him, but, but one of the reasons that God and the Bible continually tell you to get into a community of believers, part of the church, part of, part of close community with believers, is that because as the spirit begins to do work, as things are revealed to you about yourself through scripture, he will also reveal that to you in the people and community around you and it become very apparent. In fact, the more vulnerable and open and authentic you are with other Christians, the more it will be inescapable for you to go, oh wow, I really do have to walk away from that sin. The problem is in my heart, I'm holding on to it like this. The best analogy I can give you of the way we hold on to these little hidden sins is it's like, you ever had a two-year-old like reach up and grab a steak knife? And they just have their fist around it and you're like, man, I gotta take that, you're gonna hurt yourself. And they're like, no, you'd be so evil to take this from me. And you're like, don't be an idiot. You're gonna kill yourself, you're gonna hurt yourself. And God will do that with us. He puts his spirit in us because the very things that would kill us and that would harm us and would lead us to death, he does not make us deal with those things because we're incapable of it. He comes into our life. He puts believers in our life. He reveals things through scripture in our life so that the spirit can transform us into Christ's likeness and away from sins of the flesh. And the way we keep this clean is we gather together and we make much of him and we allow the spirit to do work in us. And he does. He does. Have a problem with greed? 
You put yourself in a generous church surrounded by generous people in your community group, and you watch how quickly you will actually begin to realize how greedy you are, and God will begin to transform you into a more generous person. You're struggling with pride, you begin to serve other people in the context of the body of Christ. And in fact, don't even pick where you're going to serve. Have someone else pick. Go to them and say, hey, I just want to serve. Where, where should I go? Stop. I, one of the things that I think has just been crazy about American church is most sit around on the sidelines for three years thinking about our spiritual gifts and never actually serve. I'm like, what are you doing? Jump in. Get in the pool. You'll figure out the fit somewhere around lap seven. Get in. It's not about you anyways. It's about serving other people. Sometimes, let's be real, you need a Christian brother or sister to be, man, I love you, and they kick you in the pool. It works a lot better. God desires real relationship with you. And listen, I just want you to hear this. I'm going to give you an invitation. We're going to do baptisms. He is so much more than you think he is. He is so much more than you think he is. He loves you more deeply than you think he does. He knows you more intimately than you know yourself, and he still loves you, which is the grace of God. And he has so much more for you. Every description of what God is going to do in the life of a believer has to do with abundance and joy and contentment and satisfaction. And, and it is an act of faith to let go of the things that are inside of you that you don't want to let go of because we are strong-willed, stubborn, stiff-necked people and let the Spirit root those things out in the community of the church so that God can give you those things and he wants to. He wants to. Our prayer team and our elders are going to be up here on the side while we sing this song and we get ready for baptism. I'm going to give you two invitations. The first is this. If you have put your saving faith in Jesus, if you have called him as your king, if you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, the very next step is a public profession of faith where we dunk you under the water. It's not a drought. It's totally okay. And we want to do that. If you want to do that and you haven't done that, come up today. We will talk to you and baptize you. We'd love to. It's one of the, it's one of the great joys of serving in a church and being in a church is getting to see believers put faith in Christ. Secondly, if there are things that you have been grieving the Holy Spirit over because the Holy Spirit has been doing work in your life and reminding you about some things that he wants you to walk away from or he wants you to give up or he wants you to change and you have been arguing with him, I want to give you just an opportunity to come up and have prayer for that today and, and talk about that publicly with somebody outside the inner monologue that we all have with ourselves where we argue back and forth and tell somebody, I think God is asking me to do this because there's a freeing aspect to saying God's right, I'm wrong, he's king. And so if that's you today, I'm going to offer you an opportunity to come to the altar, come up and talk to a prayer team member or an elder and just receive prayer. If you are struggling in any area, if you're hurt, if you're sick, we would love to pray for you. Let me pray for our service and we'll move on. Father God, thank you for your son. Thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for chasing me down. Thank you for loving me through all of my greed, my, my haggling, all of my sin and my mistakes, God. Thank you for loving this people, God, and chasing them. 
Thank you that you didn't let us run away. You just kept chasing. And God, I pray that you open the eyes and the hearts of the people that hear this message to see that you are so much more than we give you credit for. You're so much greater than we think you are, God. And you have so much more in store for us than we could ever imagine. God, you move people as they need to be moved. You motivate them. You stir them in their affections. In Jesus' name, amen.